Listen to these last two words, two verses from the Sermon on the Mount. They actually tell us what the reaction of the original audience was to this sermon. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we want to ask you that you would come now in a demonstration of the spirit and of power so that our faith would not be in the words of man, but in the words of God, which these truly are. We beg you, Lord God, that you would make us see afresh in the preaching of the word that the Lord our God is mighty, the Lord our God is omnipotent, the Lord our God is wonderful. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. In this morning's sermon, I want to equip you for the work of evangelism, and specifically, I want to equip you for the work of evangelism from the Sermon on the Mount that we've just spent so many months looking at. Last Sunday, we were looking at Ephesians chapter 4, and we saw in Ephesians chapter 4 that Jesus, when he ascended on high to be at the right hand of the Father, didn't forget about his church, but he gave various educators. He gave apostles, he gave prophets, he gave evangelists, he gave pastors and teachers, not to do the ministry, but to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's what he did. And my goal this morning is to take part in some of that equipping in terms of how, equipping you to do the great work of evangelism with the friends and neighbors and acquaintances that you have in your life. Uh, Pastor Danny is going to be doing this kind of equipping work as well in the coming weeks. Every Sunday morning from February 25th, just a few weeks from now, February 25th, 9 a.m., until March 2nd, 9 a.m. Sunday mornings, Danny will be doing a Christianity Explained Bible study for non-Christians and for Christians who want to be more equipped to share the gospel. I've taught Christianity Explained many times. I love it. It's just thrilling to teach. It's so simple. All the cookies are on the bottom shelf, and it's not watered down at all. It's just a great, basic gospel presentation. So if you are wanting to share the gospel with friends, that would be a great time to invite them Sunday at 9 a.m. for the Sunday school hour. They can stay or not stay for church. That's fine either way. Just invite them to that time to have Pastor Danny explain the gospel real simple, really clearly. And if you're like, I, I, I know I made it to the membership interview, but I don't think I could actually share the gospel with anyone, that would be a great time just to sit and soak and think about what are some really clear ways to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't want Pastor Danny to get all the action, so I wanted to jump in here uh, this morning and equip you a little bit for the work of evangelism. And since we've spent so much time in the Sermon on the Mount, and we're all a bunch of Sermon on the Mount scholars at this point, I, I wanted to take what we've learned from the Sermon on the Mount and think, how could this be used 
in evangelism? How could we grow in evangelism just with something we've already studied on Sunday morning? So, I want you to notice three things about the Sermon on the Mount that make it particularly useful for evangelism. I want you to notice three things about the Sermon on the Mount. That's Matthews 5, 6, and 7. We're just at the tail end of it right now. I want you to notice three things about the Sermon on the Mount that make it a particularly useful tool for evangelism. And the first thing is this. The Sermon on the Mount has often turned interest into astonishment. The Sermon on the Mount has often turned curiosity into wonder. It's often turned those who were just checking it out into those whose jaws were on the floor at what they'd heard. And we just need to read the two verses we read to notice that. And when Jesus finished these sayings, which sayings? Matthew 5 through 7. This is actually the way that Matthew ends all of Jesus' sermons. There's five of them we'll see in the book of Matthew. He ends them with, and when Jesus had finished these sayings. So when this sermon was over, here was the reaction. The crowds were astonished at his teaching. Not sleeping, not drooling, not losing focus, not checking their phones. Astonished at his teaching. Now, it's pretty important that we understand uh, that the crowds who were listening to the sermon were not believers. The crowds who were astonished were not converted. Uh, the book of Matthew makes it very clear there's a distinction between two groups who were listening to the sermon. And the distinction is drawn out very carefully for us at the start of the sermon, Matthew 5.1. When, when Matthew writes this, he says, seeing the crowds, Matthew 5.1, he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain, that's why they call it the Sermon on the Mount, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, the disciples came to him. So the picture here in the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus is speaking to a core group of committed followers, of, of Christians, that we would say, if we could speak anachronistically, of believers, of people who had become invested and believed. But there's a large crowd of onlookers, of the curious. And it's very important when you read the sermon that you don't think every, all of it applies equally to everyone. So when Jesus says to the disciples, you are the light of the world, he doesn't mean that the crowds are the light of the world. He doesn't mean, hey, everyone who ever hears this sermon is the light of the world. That's not what's being said. It's believers who are the light of the world. Or when he tells us to pray, our Father in heaven, he's not saying God's everybody's Father. The, the, the sermon is directed primarily towards believers. But just like I know there are unbelievers present this morning, hearing everything I'm saying, Jesus knew the crowds were there, and they were hanging on his every word. And he preached a sermon to believers that left the unbelievers, I think the British would say, gobsmacked, just 
floored, beside themselves. Not just piqued in their curiosity, but actually full of awe. The effect that this sermon has had on unbelieving crowds makes me think it could be easily helpful, really helpful, as a passage of Scripture we use in evangelism in our very unimpressed age. And I want to think with you this morning about how God might make crowds of men and women in Louisville astonished with Jesus through the Sermon on the Mount. Think with me for a minute about the astonishing effect this sermon has had on the crowds throughout history. We just saw the astonishing effect it had on the original audience. But the sermon has tended to stun people wherever it's gone. E. Stanley Jones, the American missionary, uh, was interacting with a Hindu professor. And the Hindu professor, with no affiliation to Christianity, said, the Jesus of dogma, I do not understand. But the Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount, I love and am drawn to. The sermon he felt kindled love in his heart and drew him to Jesus. Or listen to this interaction East Stanley Jones had with a Sufi Muslim. Sufi Islam is a more mystical form of Islam. And uh, talking to a Sufi Muslim, the Sufi Muslim teacher said, when I read the Sermon on the Mount, I can't keep back the tears. Maybe you've heard something striking like this too. As you've interacted around the scriptures with other people, or if you haven't, you've probably heard the more generic, I believe he's a great teacher. There's lots of people willing to give Jesus pride of place as the greatest teacher who has ever lived, even if they don't personally believe in the Christ of Christianity, the Christ of the Bible. There's something authoritative, astonishing, compelling, that people find when they're exposed at all to the words of Christ. So I'm not saying the Sufi Muslim or the Hindu professor were saved. I'm just saying they were floored. And I am submitting to you that floored is better than disinterested. And uh, let's bring it a little more present. I'm trying to be as practical as possible. The original audience was astonished. There have been religious leaders of other religions astonished. And so let me ask you this. Do you know anyone who's simply positively inclined to the teachings of Jesus in any way? Do you know anyone who's just interested in the words of Jesus? And I know all the talk. We're living in a negative world and people are just set against the words of Jesus. But just think for a minute. Do you know anyone who is interested in the teachings of Jesus? Maybe you know a Muslim who would acknowledge that Jesus is one of the great prophets. Maybe you know a Mormon who would uh, have heretical views of Jesus but still be 
open, interested, maybe even own a copy of the Sermon on the Mount. Or maybe you're saying, listen, I don't even know religious people. Everyone I'm, I know, it's, it's America, it's 2024, religion is politics. That's where all that religious devotion goes in our day, is towards politics. That's where the devotion, the conviction, the passion is directed. But have you noticed that both sides of the very divided political aisle in our day are always quoting scripture? Both sides. If you know uh, people of a liberal or progressive political persuasion, you know people who quote the Sermon on the Mount favorably. Liberals and progressives will quote, blessed are the poor. Uh, the verse, whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them, comes up often in the immigration debate. Jesus' words are everywhere. Recently, I was crossing a very liberal picket line to get a very fine cup of coffee. And I found, I found the men and women were holding up signs with the very words of Jesus printed on them. And I got to talk to them about the words of Jesus, which they were holding up, as proof that Jesus would have been on one particular side of that picket line. And you might be going, yeah, but those verses are being twisted out of context. You're missing my point. I'm not talking about conversions yet. I'm talking about connections. I'm talking about open doors to begin to speak about Jesus Christ, where someone else has already taken the initiative, where they brought him up. Could you imagine being in a situation where someone quotes the Sermon on the Mount, because it happens all the time, and you say, you know, that verse you just quoted, it actually comes from the Sermon on the Mount. Have you read that? I would love to sit down and read it with you sometime. It only takes 10 to 15 minutes to read. Would you read it with me? Or maybe you have conservative friends who are positively inclined towards the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, in 2000, the year 2000, the Republican presidential candidate, George W. Bush, wooed evangelicals when he said Jesus was his favorite philosopher. He knew that that would score points with many conservatives. In recent years, we literally have an unbeliever, Jordan Peterson, filling theaters and garnering tens of millions of YouTube views as he gives extended meditations on Scripture and even on the Sermon on the Mount. Do you know any of those Peterson followers? If you don't, you must be hiding under a rock. Do you know any of those conservatives who talk about Christianity? And Judeo-Christian values being the backbone of Western civilization, you ever heard that before? Could you ever see yourself saying to one of them, you know, a lot of Jesus' teachings are actually stated in the Sermon on the Mount. Have you ever read it? Would you read it sometime with me? It only takes 10 to 15 minutes, and I'd love to read it with an insert your favorite evangelistic beverage here. Could you find an open door for God's word with liberals or conservatives? And when the political heat turns up over the coming year, and it will, will we be a people 
primarily focused on the evangelistic mission of the church, who realized that all the swirling misquoting of Jesus for us isn't just confusion, it's opportunity. It's open door. To say, hey, that verse you just mentioned, it reminds me of something in the Sermon on the Mount. Have you ever read it? I would love to read it with you. It only takes like 10 or 15 minutes to read. Would you ever grab coffee with me so we could look at it together? I'd love to talk to you about that. You say, well, I don't know any liberals or conservatives. Okay, well, let me just reach you where you are. I don't know where you are, but... uh, You can't live in this culture without hearing the lines of the Sermon on the Mount. Turn the other cheek. That guy's the salt of the earth. Love your enemies. Love your neighbor as yourself. You know, Jesus said something about that in the Sermon on the Mount. Have you read it? I'd love to read it with you sometime. It only takes 10 or 15 minutes to read. Love to read it with you sometime. Or just think about, forget even phrases, topics, anxiety, money, blessing. If you got someone who's into the health and wealth gospel, as millions are, fill churches 10 times this size. There's radical things being said there about what blessing really is right at the top of the sermon. Anxiety, blessing, money, hypocrisy. Ever met anyone who hated hypocrisy? Hypocrisy. Forgiveness. Responding to being sinned against. And that spirit of retaliation. It's all there. It's all there. And I won't say it one more time. But any little connection like that is your opportunity. Now think about this. The Apostle Paul is walking through the city of Athens. And in Athens, which was so full of idols, it grieves Paul's heart. And he's sitting there in Athens, or walking around in Athens, and he sees an idol to an unknown God. And when Paul sees an idol... To an unknown God, he says to the Athenians, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Listen, if Paul can take an idol to an unknown God, we can certainly take all the references to the true God that are floating around in our culture and jump on them as opportunities to proclaim the gospel. With this confidence that the Sermon on the Mount has often turned interest into astonishment. Now, just say one little practical thing about this. Very often our interactions with unbelievers never go further than quoting the sins of the culture verses to them. So very quickly we get to a cross point of the culture. You think this about gay marriage, I think this. I tell you why it's sinful and that's important. There's nothing wrong with that. You should do that. But it's not the whole gospel, right? The gospel is not homosexuality is wrong. Can I get an amen? Amen. Homosexuality is wrong. But it's not the gospel. 
the gospel is much fuller and could you do better than to actually submerge someone in chapters of Jesus' own words? Like, but I'm not ready to defend everything Jesus said. Spurgeon said, defend the Bible? I'd sooner defend a lion. You let Jesus speak for three chapters straight, he'll do a lot of the defending himself. So, Sermon on the Mount has often turned interest into astonishment. Second point, the Sermon on the Mount turns the interested into the astonished like a Trojan horse. The Sermon on the Mount turns the interested into the astonished like a Trojan horse. You know the story of the Trojan horse? The ancient Greeks were trying to conquer the city of Troy, and this is perseverance. Nobody's got patience for this anymore, but they tried for 10 years. For 10 years, they tried to get into one city and could not breach the walls of Troy despite all of their military efforts. So they came up with a clever idea. They would build a large wooden horse. They would insert a special ops unit in the belly of the horse. They would tell the people of Troy that the horse was a gift and they were giving up. They would load up into their boats and turn the corner and make it look like they were leaving. And the people of Troy, not the wisest people of all history, thought, what a gift. After 10 years of war, they've left us a gift. How precious. And they, they brought the horse into town. And at night, the Greeks opened up the belly of the horse, opened up this gate to the city, and destroyed the city that hadn't fallen for 10 years. It was an unexpected attack. It was not a direct attack. And I would suggest to you that the Sermon on the Mount astonishes people who aren't expecting it. Let me give you a little background. You gotta think about these crowds a little bit more. These crowds that are referenced in our verse, remember we're looking at verse 28, and when Jesus finished these saying, the crowds were astonished, and we said, the crowds are not the disciples, okay? These are not the committed, these are the onlookers, the crowds, who were they? Who were these crowds? Well, we're told in Matthew chapter 4 who they were, how they gathered, how they sort of got up some steam, how they came to fill stadiums. What happened? Well, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 24, Jesus is teaching and doing miracles. His ministry is just suffused with the supernatural. And it says this in Matthew 4, 24. His fame, so because he was doing all these miracles, his fame spread through all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And the great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan, right up to the top of that mountain. Now here's something you need to know. You'll see if you read through the Gospels even once. As wonderful as miracles are, most of the people following Jesus for miracles are going down the wrong path. 
Uh, they're after a free, they're basically looking at Jesus like a glorified soup kitchen, glorified, the health and wealth mentality wasn't born a few years ago. It's always been around. And so here are these people, they're attracted to Jesus for the miracles. It's not bad in and of itself, but isn't all the way. Jesus didn't come to sort of sprinkle miracle dust on the planet and then leave. The miracles were pointing to something much greater. So here's these people coming in for the miracles, and they're looking at Jesus, and by the time they've heard three chapters of his teaching, their thoughts about the miracles are not top of their mind. They're astonished at the teaching. They've never heard anything like this, not from any scribe they've ever heard before. In this man, they hear something utterly unique. Now, maybe I should just make a good point about miracles. This is where miracles function properly. We see this in the book of Acts. We see this everywhere. Miracles function properly when they arouse the attention and get people to put their eyes on Jesus and all that he says. So this is what's happening. These people are coming for the miracles. They stay for the authority. In our day and age, people often come to the Sermon on the Mount for the morality. It makes me weep. It draws me in. We want them to stay for the theology. You see, here's what happens. Let me make this point clear, because I might have told too many stories and lost you. Where is he? He's talking about Jesus something. But The Sermon on the Mount brings people into all different reasons. I want to hear the morality. I've never heard anything better than this. This guy's a miracle worker. It makes people lean in. But by the time they're done listening, their jaws are on the floor going, who has this kind of authority? Why does this happen? Why does this happen? Why does it happen that people are attracted to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, but then they leave with more than they bargained for? Well, I would suggest to you that they're attracted because everything Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount is what we know is right. We were made in the image of God. We were made to resonate with what God loves. We have consciences that as messed up as they are, were originally formed to affirm what God says is true and to deny what God says is false. We were made in the image of the God who would go on to preach the Sermon on the Mount. And so when we hear it, it just sounds godly. It sounds like what we know God would say. But then, as you hear it, you start to realize these aren't just good ideas. And what the sermon communicates is not just a code of conduct, not just ethics. It primarily makes people astonished with him. It's Jesus that gets all the attention the more the sermon is listened to. So let me ask you, if you were to read the Sermon on the Mount, you know, you did it, okay. Hey, I, I, uh, uh, uh. want to read the Sermon on the Mount? 
okay? And it works. And, uh, and there you are having coffee and you're drinking your coffee or whatever you're doing, eating your donut, whatever. And you're looking at the Sermon on the Mount together and you're reading it. What, what would you bring out? What would you point out? What would you maybe highlight, even in the inflection of your voice, to say, you see, something's happening here that's a little bit more than just a Christian ethics manual. It's not just about these things. It's about him. Well, just listen to this. Right off the bat, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Who is this who decides who's going to inherit the earth? Who is this that thinks his word is the word that gets to decide who are the sons of God? You read a little further. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So, so far he sounds like a good, studied scholar. You've heard this was said. I'm aware of the cultural teaching that's around you. I know the scholarly teaching of the day. I've read Moses myself. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say, That's wild audacity. Or it's total sovereignty. But I say, Moses, me. But wait, Moses and Jesus can't contradict each other. They're both from God. That's right. But Jesus says, don't think I contradict Moses. I fulfill him. Now listen, I've made a lot of claims from this pulpit, but not about me. Right? It's all, look at this word. Jesus comes along. You know, they, they, read, they read scripture in the synagogue when Jesus is there. And he says, that which we just read is happening in your midst through me. I mean, he's either the wildest megalomaniac who ever lived. Or he's the humble incarnate son of God. In the Sermon on the Mount, he, he announces the standard by which men will be judged in their prayers. He tells us how people should relate to God. He tells us who can be forgiven and how. And then when he speaks about the final judgment, he speaks about himself as the final judge. Like he's there. He's describing an event he plans to attend. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus is the one who welcomes some in and sends others away. 
It's absolute authority. It's, it's sovereign authority. He is the determiner. He is the judge. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And he, he's, he's so much the king of kings and Lord of lords that he's not always telling you that. He just talks like it. You ever met a real expert? And I'm not talking about a second-year philosophy student. That's not who I'm talking about. I'm talking about an actual expert in anything. So much an expert that they're actually humble about what they know. You just listen to them for five minutes and you're like, that has got the ring of, that guy actually knows what he's talking about. And he doesn't have to tell me how he knows all that he's talking about. It just comes out in the clarity of knowledge he has. Jesus had that effect on people when he spoke about everything. And so here's this crowd, and they've just listened to this sermon. You know who's going to heaven? I'll tell you. You know what Moses said? Here's what I say. You know the last day when people say, Lord, Lord, they'll be saying it to me, and I'll determine whether they are authentic or not. In other words, I know their hearts. He's making such a stunning claim to authority Spurgeon said he speaks with a royal assurance. Calvin says there was a strange, indescribable, and unusual majesty that drew to him the minds of men. And if you're afraid that your words won't cut it in evangelism, why don't you just try to get yourself in a situation where you're reading three chapters of Jesus with a friend? His words have self-authenticating power. And when we think about authority and the authority of Jesus, can you think of a more important starting point for evangelism in our day? A sermon that stuns people with astonishing authority? We live in a day and age where there's no higher authority than the self and the state. We consider ourselves to be our highest authority. We want to be who we feel we are inside. We determine our duty by our dreams. We're just supposed to follow them. We determine our identity by our desires. The only authority is me. And of course, I need the state to protect me from all the haters. Anyone who would get in the way of me expressing my needs has to be stopped by the state. We hear that all the time. What would happen if we exposed our friends to Jesus, to his glory, his morality, and his authority? An authority more beautiful than anything we could ever conjure up from our own desires. The Sermon on the Mount turns the interested into the astonished like a Trojan horse. The Sermon on the Mount, this is my third point, exposes people to an utterly unique authority. It exposes people to an utterly unique authority. 
I want you to notice that one of the things that impressed the crowds was the authority of Jesus was unlike other authorities they had experienced. Do you see that? It says there in verse uh, 28, for his teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Now, people aren't always sure how to critique the scribes. What was wrong with the scribes? And sometimes people say, well, the wrong with, what was wrong with the scribes was they quoted other people. They just quoted other people. Well, I'll just be honest with you. As a preacher who does that for a living, I'm a little sensitive to that critique. There's actually nothing wrong with quoting other people. In fact, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7 says we're supposed to pay attention to the teachers from the past. The problem with the scribes wasn't they quoted other people. It's that their authority was shallow and superficial. They said don't commit adultery. Sure they did. They said don't murder. Sure they did. They said pray. They said fast. They said give. They had authority. Give, pray, fast, don't murder. Don't commit adultery. They say don't commit adultery. He goes for the jugular of the heart and says don't lust. Don't hate. Don't pray like you're playing politics to see who will notice you. Get alone where no one will notice you and pray just towards God. He had an authority that touched the heart. He had an authority that got to the inner man. He, he got an Listen, Muslim authorities can say, hey, how are we going to fight lust? We'll cover women from head to toe. How's that working? Does that fight lust? No, Jesus' authority comes into the heart and kills lust from the root. Jesus' authority was so distinct and so unique because it was the kind of authority that actually called men to be made new, to actually be pure in heart, to actually hunger and thirst for righteousness. Listen, our world will help you virtue signal. The authorities of our day are just the same as the authorities in Jesus' day. They would help you virtue signal. How did you virtue signal in Jesus' day? You prayed in public, you fasted in public, you gave in public, and you told everyone that you were obeying the Ten Commandments. There was your virtue signaling. Our culture will help you put a rainbow flag on your desk or a Black Lives Matter sign in your window or a Me Too hashtag on your Facebook posts or show your pronouns to show you're an ally or you can wear a Make America Great Again shirt or buy your chocolate and your razors from some unwoke company, but they can't make you love your enemies or turn the other cheek or do unto others as they would have you do unto you. It's utter transformation. It's an authority unlike any other authority. It's an authority unlike all the talking heads of our day, which can give you a conservative vision of what you should do or a liberal vision of what you should do, but leave the hungering and the thirsting of the heart untouched. They leave lusts undealt with. Jesus is speaking to you about the complete transformation of you about his kingdom come in you, his will being done in you, the Father's name being hallowed in your heart, not just some hollow appearance of godliness that you put on. The people in Jesus' day had never heard anything like it. You read the Sermon on the Mount with anyone, 
they will not have heard anything like it. Now we're almost there. But there's two verses outside the Sermon on the Mount I got to add, and then we're going to close. So what's my evangelistic method? There's lots. And if you're winning a ton of people to Christ, don't even try this one. Just keep doing what you're doing. But if you're not, maybe you could give this a try. Hey, that reminds me of something in the Sermon on the Mount. Have you ever read it? It only like takes 10, 15 minutes to read. I'd love to get a with you and sit down and talk about it. And then you're reading it and you're just rolling the Trojan horse up to the gate. And the voice from eternity is speaking with all the authority and majesty that comes out of his own person. And no doubt there'll be some conviction. No doubt there will be some astonishment. And if that's there, there's one more thing on authority they need to know. It comes from Matthew 20, 25. You might want to throw this in as a note in your phone or underline it in your Bible. It's all about authority. Matthew 20, 25. But Jesus called to them and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. But whoever would be great among you, it shall not be so among you, sorry. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You hear his authority in the Sermon on the Mount? Does it probe your heart? Does it leave you astonished? Is there any conviction of sin? I want to tell you one more thing about this authority. He didn't come to hold this over you. He came to serve you. And to give his life as a ransom, a payment of a price, to set a captive loose. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, if I had to throw one more verse in, it would be the end of the book, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. But I don't have time to go there, but you, if you want to go there, it would just assure us that all authority on heaven has been given to him and he wants to make disciples of all the nations. He wants you to come in. He wants you to spend your life learning how to obey the Sermon on the Mount as a forgiven child. So, here's what I'm proposing, Emmanuel. I'm proposing, and again, there's lots of ways to share the gospel. Nobody take this as a straitjacket. I shared the gospel through Romans the other day. Is that okay? Come on. Of course it's okay. But here's what I'm proposing. That we use the Sermon on the Mount we've been studying to share the gospel. It's not the only way, but it may be a great way. It has lots of touch points in our culture that you can grab onto. It exposes people to a good chunk of scripture instead of just a few verses. 
It has a history of astonishing the interested, and it drives people to their need for a savior. It links quickly and naturally the fact that Jesus used his authority to love us by dying on the cross for sinners, and that the one who dies for us wants us to spend our lives learning to follow him. So we've prayed that babies would have been born, and they've been born. We've prayed that all cultures would be praising God, and we've seen evidence of that this morning. Would you join me in praying that God would bring many to salvation, and the waters of baptism will be flowing as we enjoy the privilege of sharing the gospel of his grace, starting from the Sermon on the Mount. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. Thank you for your grace and your kindness and your mercy. Thank you for these things which you've taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Thank you that your astonishing authority comes through in all of them. I pray, Lord God, that you would open up dozens and even hundreds of opportunities for us to spend time reading the scriptures with friends and pointing them to Christ and even seeing them saved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.